I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome to the first RHS Gardening Podcast of 2015. Happy New Year! Every fortnight in these podcasts, we bring you a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening, growing your own fruit and vegetables, plant care, pest control, garden design and container ideas, plus expert seasonal advice. I'm Jenny Bowden, one of the RHS's team of horticultural advisors, based here at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. Coming up in this New Year edition, RHS experts answer your seasonal gardening questions, a preview of some of the garden highlights coming up in the year ahead, and, as always, the latest news on RHS garden events across the UK. But first, our final look at gardening bestsellers, Fiona Davison, Head of Collections at the RHS Lindley Library in London, concludes her discussion of some of the most influential tomes in the library. These are books that changed the way we garden when they were published and still have influence to this day. The RHS Lindley Library holds unique collections of early printed books on gardening, botanical art and photographs. It also holds the archives of the RHS and personal archives of notable gardeners and garden designers. It contains vast numbers of gardening magazines and periodicals and an extensive range of 20th century gardening books. The library is free to access for RHS members and non-members alike. And now in our tour of best-selling gardening books, we're going to whiz forward uh, 300 or so years. We're now um, in the 1880s, 1883 to be precise, with The English Flower Garden by William Robinson. And this was in print for a long time, um, over 50 years. Um, the, the 50th um, edition was published in 1933. And the reason I'm focusing on this one um, is it's such an influential book in terms of garden design. William Robinson was quite a cantankerous, I think it's fair to say, garden journalist and writer. Um, he spoke his mind frequently. Um, and what he was most associated with was a move away from formal um, Vict high Victorian bedding out schemes where you would overwinter uh, non-hardy plants in a greenhouse and propagate them and then bring them out for the summer for these big, formal, very colourful, very uh, geometric bedding out schemes. And William Robinson kind of spearheaded the reaction against that with uh, books like The English Flower Garden where he is uh, 
promoting the idea of more naturalistic planting and concentrating on hardy plants, which pretty much look after themselves. He wasn't um, rigid on them being native. He didn't. He was very happy for people to choose non-native plants, but the the, the whole. Uh, thrust behind the English flower garden was that the the plants should be capable of being naturalized and so you would grow them in drifts um, and you would grow them in um, settings in your garden that looked more natural. The other reason I suppose this book was and, and other books that he wrote were, were so popular was that that appealed for a class of gardeners who didn't have teams and teams of gardeners rushing around and didn't have access to hothouses. It was something you could take on yourself uh, much more easily. And now in our tour of best-selling gardening books, we're whizzing forward to the 20th century. And what I've chosen for this is the the Garden Expert series by David Hessian. Uh, the first one was published in 1959. The last one, I think, was he wrote in uh, 2011. By 2008, they notched up their 50th anniversary and their 50th million copies. So this is an immensely, just in terms of the number of households that have them, this is an immensely influential series. So even if the name Dr DG Hessian isn't ringing any bells, the minute you see them, you'll recognise them. If you don't have them, your parents will. They're very colourful, very graphic, almost, I'd say, comic book style when you look inside. So it lays out every process in a step-by-step picture format. That was really helpful after the Second World War in the 50s when there were more and more households getting gardens for the first time with the big housing boom after the war. And if you weren't lucky enough to have had any horticultural training or have relatives living nearby who could kind of hold your hand... The garden expert would take you step by step through everything you needed to know. And that's, I think, why they were so, so successful. They were also sold not not just in bookshops, but at garden centres. So they're part and parcel of the garden centre boom, which happened after the war. So you could go for the first time, pick up plants in plastic pots rather than having to order them bare rooted. And at the same time, pick up a garden expert book to show you what to do with them when you got home. You can still buy them. You can also pick them up secondhand. And I think the uh, certainly the ones published in the late 50s and 60s, I think they're very of their time and are very kind of have a kind of retro appeal as well. So I'm sure there's going to be a strong secondhand market in them. These books would make a great first book for anybody new to gardening, as would all of the RHS publications of a similar vein. That you know there is a reason why they sold 50 million copies. So the the books we've talked about in this session have been a mixture of books which, like the Thomas Hill Gardens Labyrinth and the Lawn It's a Crutter book, are available for researchers to come and make an appointment in London, but also books which are um, available in our reading room for anybody to come and, and visit. Anyone can visit the library and browse. The London Library is open weekdays, 10 till 5. Uh, the Wisley Garden Library is open seven days a week, 11 till 4 and Harlow Car the same. If you're an RHS member, you can take the books home that are on loan. Um, you can take up to four books for five weeks. We also lend DVDs as well. Um, and that's a real benefit of membership. But anybody can come in and browse. And especially when you're 
joining that with a garden visit it's a really nice especially when it's rainy to come and pop in and have a little browse and it, you can also find out more about what you're seeing in the garden um, it's a great way to kind of enrich your garden visit so i'd highly recommend that whether you're a member or not for more information on rhs libraries and reading rooms visit rhs.org.uk forward slash libraries if you'd like to catch up and listen to the first part of Fiona Davison's feature about million-selling gardening books, that episode is available to download for free from iTunes. Go to iTunes and search for RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Jenny Bowden, and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. As it's the new year, we thought we'd take the opportunity to ask some of the RHS staff what they were most looking forward to in the year ahead. I'm Tony Dickerson, one of the horticultural advisors here at RHS Garden Wisley. At this time of year, I'm already looking forward to the new seed catalogues and, of course, the listings on all the websites. It's a great opportunity to seek out new varieties and offerings, particularly interested in the range of vegetables. Although there's great heritage varieties out there, um, it's important not to overlook the new cultivars that come along. There's an awful lot of plant breeding going on, and many of those perform very well in the garden. So, again, really interesting time of year. The main thing is not to be too ambitious, ending up with trays of seed packets. Uh, You need to have the time and the facilities to be able to sow those and get started in the new year, but not too early. Uh, Certainly after the middle of February is generally fine for most seed growing, and often if you've not got the specialised facilities, wait until March. My name's Guy Barter, and I work here at Wisley uh, for the Royal Horticultural Society as Chief Horticultural Advisor. Each year, I look forward to the irises and the peonies here at Wisley. They're difficult things to fit into your ordinary garden, especially a small home garden. And in fact, traditionally, there have been separate iris gardens and peony gardens. And there's good reasons for that. Peonies are incredibly sumptuous in early summer. But on the other hand, they're very short-lived. And before you know it, uh, all the flowers are gone and that wonderful period of glorious, rich flowers is over, leaving the rather bedraggled bush for the rest of the year. So, although you can't grow these things as easily at home as you can at Wisley, you've got the opportunity of coming to Wisley and looking round at the peonies, which we have scattered all round the garden, um, and they're in flower at uh, different seasons. So, if you come in a, a late May, early summer, you'll catch at least some of them. It's interesting that in recent years, the herbaceous peonies that are particularly difficult to fit into the gardens have been supplemented by large numbers of tree peonies as well. The tree peonies are easier to fit into gardens, and our garden staff here at Wisley have used their excellent plant knowledge to insert tree peonies hither and thither around the garden so that visitors can enjoy them and uh, decide whether they want to incorporate them in their own garden. So as well as the peony feast, the second thing that is difficult to grow in your own garden, but which you can enjoy lavishly here at Wisley, are bearded irises. Bearded irises too look a bit of a dog's dinner once their flowering season is over. But in that short period, in early, in late spring and early summer, there's an absolute sumptuous Persian carpet of rich colours and gorgeous flowers unfurl bit by bit. If you're lucky enough to have a spare area, they're great to grow for cut flowers. So obviously we don't do that at Wisley. We leave them for visitors to look at. And um, because they're such a wonderful flower and so difficult to, for people to fit into their own gardens, we've invested heavily in trials of bearded irises over the years to identify really good ones. And uh, those have informed our selection of bearded irises here at Wisley. So that's what I'm looking forward to. My garden's too small to grow them, but um, happily, 
Um, I can enjoy them to perfection and in abundance here at Wisley. My name is Matthew Pottage and I'm Deputy Curator here at RHS Garden Wisley. So looking ahead into 2015, something I'm quite excited about, which is light-hearted and something a bit different, will be our summer bedding on the top terrace. Uh, our theme in RHS Gardens in 2015 is Alice in Wonderland, and that links closely with our family and children's activities. So we thought we need to be in line with this. We need to be a bit more light-hearted with our bedding. So we're going to have this Wonderland bedding on the top terrace, vibrant colours, very wacky plant choices. But the really fun thing is we're going to do have, have a bit of uh, what I call carpet bedding, but 3D planting. And that is going to be a large toadstool with a caterpillar sat on top of it. It'll all be living, it'll all be planted with sedums, echeverias, alternanthera, a little bit of Victorian kind of times gone by. They used to do this kind of very intensive high maintenance bedding, but we've not had any 3D carpet bedding at Wisley for a lot of years. And we just thought it would be really fun to bring it back with something a little bit wacky, a little bit, you know, from from Wonderland. And I'm sure it will delight all our visitors <laughs> and probably raise a few eyebrows because people will, I'm sure, not associate it with what they expect to see at Wisley. And it'll be a bit of good fun. Well, I'm looking forward to a very early crop of broad beans because the seeds are already well ahead because I planted them in October. So the plants are quite sturdy and I should get a much earlier crop than if I plant them in the springtime. If you fancy getting out and about over the next few weeks, here's some events and attractions you might like to visit. At RHS Garden Hyde Hall, join in on a guided tour of Hyde Hall's atmospheric woodlands, taking place on the 13th, the 20th and the 27th of January at 11am. Take advantage of a warming soup and a bread roll afterwards for just £4. Come to RHS Garden Rosemore on the 16th of January between 11 and 12.30 for a demonstration and talk on what to do in the garden now. RHS experts will help you through the gardening year, providing a whistle-stop tour of techniques, tips and tricks and advice on seasonal tasks such as mulching, preparation for the year ahead, renovation and pruning of shrubs, rose pruning and more. From the 17th of January, the Glass House at RHS Garden Wisley opens its event, Butterflies in the Glass House. And now you can book the exact time of your visit, spot hundreds of exquisite butterflies in a tropical paradise, plus join a butterfly photography morning, indulge in Taste of Wisley's butterfly-themed tea time treats and learn about these fascinating creatures during special half-term activities. This all runs until 8th of March. For full details of all these events and more, go to the RHS website, rhs.org.uk forward slash gardens what's on. And for the RHS shows this year, give an RHS show ticket gift voucher to family and friends to enjoy a wonderful day at one of our world famous flower shows, where they'll find dazzling gardens, stunning floral displays, top advice from RHS experts and much more. It's a wonderful present for everyone, not just for garden lovers. Visit rhs.org.uk forward slash shows gift voucher. Now, if you're a regular listener to the RHS Gardening Podcast, you'll already know that members of the RHS advisory team regularly answer your gardening questions. So let's join my colleagues now to hear advice on some of your first inquiries of 2015. 
Hello, I'm Lee Hunt. I'm the Principal Horticulture Advisor here at RHS Garden Wisley. Hello, I'm Guy Barter. I'm one of the horticultural team here at Wisley. Hello there, my name's Rob and I'm one of the horticultural advisors here at Wisley. The next question is from Ulrika Rub-Taylor. Um, I have a camellia which flowers beautifully every year, but otherwise doesn't seem to grow. Apparently they need acid soil. I, it used to be in a container until the beginning of this year, and I've planted it out since we moved into a house with a big garden. Should I put it back into a container with acid soil, or is there a way I can leave it in the garden and just make sure the soil around it is a bit more acid? I think there's no need to worry here. I think what's happened is that uh, the roots haven't expanded from the container. When you put the uh, root ball from the container in the ground, they haven't gone out into the surrounding soil. So I'd be inclined to lift it um, between October and March, tease out the roots and replant. The question is, of course, is, is the soil in your garden sufficiently acid or not? Um, and you can easily tell, look around in neighbouring gardens, are there any rhododendrons or camellias or pyrus or heathers? If there are, the soil in your district is good. If there aren't, or if you live in a, a chalky or limey district, then the uh, container method might be might be the way to go. Um, it's not, uh, alkaline soil isn't going to kill your camellia, it'll just make it look a bit yellow, so you can, you can wait and see what happens if you want to, and in the meantime, uh, acidify the soil with some sulphur chips or some sulphate of ammonia, and uh, water it with rainwater, and see if... Um, and see how it comes on so um i don't think your plants in mortal peril from the acidity of the soil but what i would say is that when it hasn't rooted out into the surrounding soil it's very vulnerable uh, to dry weather because the root ball um, will dry out but the the roots haven't got out into the surrounding soil so be sure to water it very carefully for the next couple of years Uh, i think also and because the roots are in a fairly confined um spot until it actually gets its roots out into the surrounding soil to help it grow it might be a good idea to give it some liquid feed um, on a regular basis through the spring and summer um, and then stop feeding um, completely in uh, late July beginning of August Um, otherwise that can adversely affect its uh, uh, potential for flowering so um, do that for a couple of years after a couple of years you should find that its roots will have actually spread out into the surrounding soil and it can begin to find food for itself from the garden um, and then from then on it will just be use, useful to give it a, a mulch every spring with a couple of inches of well-rotted compost which will help to retain the moisture in the soil which as Guy said is is important to enable it to grow and flower properly. Do be um, prepared to wait as well Waiting for clay soils is quite an interesting thing. With shrubs, it can take five to even ten years on the heaviest clay for them to really get their roots down and get them properly established. So as long as they're growing a little, as long as they're not looking really yellow, because that might indicate that there is, um, needs to be acidic conditions, then yes, waiting is definitely the best thing. We've had two questions on bindweed come in. Uh, Firstly, Laura King emails us to say, please can you give me tips on getting rid of bindweed in an already established garden? And uh, John Sanderson adds to that, um, I once heard uh, if you burn the tips of the bindweed or dip them in weed killer, the chemical travels back to the roots and they die. Was someone pulling my leg or does this work? 
What do you think, Guy? Well, bindweed, of course, <clears throat> dies back underground in winter, so you're not going to be able to do anything till it comes up next year in the in terms of weed killers. But what you can do is where you know bindweed exists is to just fork the ground lightly and just hook out as much of it as you can and consign it to the bonfire or bury it at the bottom of your compost bin. And that will reduce the amount you have to have to deal with next year. Um, in some cases, uh, because it's such a pernicious and difficult weed to beat down, it's worth putting down a black mulch any time after the turn of the year, around shrubs and fruit, between rows of raspberries, things like that. Um, and that will reduce the amount of work you're going to have to do later. Now, what will happen is, um, come spring, unfortunately, the bindweed and pretty well every garden has some, will start growing. And when it starts growing, it becomes vulnerable to weed killer. And you can uh, spot treat it um, as it grows. Uh, you can use a thing called glyphosate gel, which is where you, a Roundup gel is the trade name, is where you carefully dab um, the Roundup gel onto the plants. When it's growing around established plants, you already want to keep. Um, and uh, you can use a little ready-to-use packs to give one a, a discreet, careful squirt of weed killer as well. And uh, that's a particularly good way of um, of dealing with it. Of course, organic gardeners can't use weed killer, but nothing can survive if it's vigorously hoed and cut back at regular intervals, say every couple of weeks through the summer. So it's a lot of work, but um, it will it will uh, have effect in the end. And uh, finally, at the end of the year. Um, just before it goes back underground it's particularly vulnerable to weed killer treatment so that's in September and October so mark your diary to have another go at um, knocking out any survivors at that time and there always are survivors you have to be reasonable um, you can't get rid of it in one year but in a persistent effort over a couple of years we'll be we'll be rid of it and um, there's one little dodge that's rather fun if you put a cane in uh, where you've got roundup or a stick of some sort the uh, the bindweed will grow up the stick and then you line pull it up and lie the stick on a sheet of plastic an old bin bag or something like that and then carefully spray that and when it's dry put it back up and it'll work its way down to the roots and get rid of the bindweed from forever from out of your life Ruby Cruz has sent in an email in which she asks about her coffee plant and uh, Ruby is growing her coffee plant in a pot on her windowsill and she says I recently repotted it as it was looking a bit anemic but I'm not sure how best to care for it and how to get it to produce flowers and fruit. At home in Australia um, they produce stunning white flowers and red shiny fruit. How do I get it to do the same in the UK? At present, I put eggshells around it, as I've heard that's good for calcium, and pour my old coffee grounds around it for nutrition. Is this right? What else should we do? Well, I'm going to pass this to Rob in the first instance, as he's a bit of a dab hand with houseplants. What should Ruby do, Rob? Well, um, first of all, if the plant is in a pot on a windowsill, it suggests that it's actually quite small. And... Um, um, in order for it to, to start to flower, it needs to be several years old, fairly mature. So unfortunately, there would probably still be quite a wait, I think, for the plant to start to produce flowers. Um, however, um, in the meantime, it's important to keep it healthy and to grow um, optimally so that the plant will eventually flower and produce the fruit you want. Um, coffee plants tend to prefer an acidic soil they're ericaceous plants and so consequently 
um, they need to be grown in a, an acid um, compost suitable for rhododendrons or azaleas, those kinds of things, um, and regularly fed um, during the growing season with an, an ericaceous food such as miracle grow acid, um, etc. Um, if you water um, with tap water and you're in a hard water area, bear in mind that that, um, particularly in a small pot, can build up um, the the alkalinity in the hard water that is and can can alter the ph of the soil and affect the health of the plant so use rainwater where possible if you can if not use a water filter um that's um, almost as good and um will take out the hardness from the from the water and your plant will um benefit from it I would suggest you remove the eggshells um, as soon as you can um, because they are essentially a, a calcium compound and calcium is an alkaline substance and so that will affect your, your compost as they break down. And rather than coffee grounds, um, as I said, use a well-balanced um, fertiliser. Um, it's not really known how how much nutrient there is in coffee grounds and how much that would benefit your plant it probably is an acidic mix um so it would suit it from a ph point of view but in terms of nutrients i would go with the fertilizer uh just trying to be devil's advocate here do you think it's worth giving the coffee plant a drink of tea um, well, actually, some work has been done on uh, feeding plants beverages, and uh, it would appear that they do plants no harm. They might have a modicum of nutrients, um, particularly tea that has a, a little um, nitrogen in it and uh, slightly acid. So um, it's well worth a, a go, although, as uh, Rob said, a suitable fertiliser is more reliable. Okay, the next question is from Amy Goggins of Birmingham, and she asks, please can you suggest small trees or shrubs, or large plants even, that will survive in a big planter in my front garden with minimal care? Preferably things that are big enough that they're not too easy to nick. Thanks very much. Well, I was thinking of something a bit prickly. If if theft is really a problem in your area, then why not a holly? They can be very ornamental because you could choose a variegated one. Uh, Handsworth New Silver comes to mind. Or, of course, you can go for one that has lots of very good berries in the autumn. So uh, something like Golden King. They can be clipped. So if you want something structural, then that works very well. But I think like all plants in containers, they are going to need quite a bit of care through the summer, aren't they, Guy? Yes, but this is actually an opportunity. Um, I would suggest that uh, you would use a John Innes type compost, number two or number three, because that's nice and heavy so that thieves would find it difficult to run off with that. And um, also by feeding assiduously, you can get your plants to grow quite quickly. So you would use a, a balanced general fertilizer with plenty of nitrogen and feed every fortnight. And uh, with any luck, they'll grow quite fast. And so if you were to buy a three foot shrub, um, it would become a five foot shrub pretty quickly and uh, shrubs can be clipped to make them look nice and neat um, for a front garden. And as Lee says, prickly ones are very good. I noticed that uh, parks uh, tend to plant a lot of prickly plants as otherwise they find their new plantings end up in nearby gardens quite quickly. And the kind of plants they use are mahonias, pyracanthus, pyracanthus, um, a berberus darwinii 
and uh, one that I particularly like, um, Eliagna sabingii, which is fawny and got thick leathery grey foliage and looks a, a very nice backdrop against the house. Since you um, want the plant to survive in a big uh, planter in the front garden, um, one thing I would suggest is that um, you know if you if when you purchase the plant, the plant's in a pot which is considerably smaller than the plant the the um, the, the big container. Don't plant it directly into it. Um, you might find that the soil actually stays too wet for too long, and it, it can cause the soil to become sour, and uh, the, this will cause the roots to to rot or to be impaired in some way. So, um, in the meantime, before the plant is big enough to plant into the container, um, just insert it into the pot, into the container in its pot, um, and then. It, every couple of years take it out repot it into a larger container um, and insert that into the the other container until you're able to plant it up directly you can find more information about all aspects of plants and gardening techniques on the advice pages of our award-winning rhs website plus general gardening tips and guides to seasonal jobs go to rhs.org.uk forward slash advice Plus, here there are also video guides to key jobs in the garden. So that's all for the first podcast of the 2015 edition. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden and all the RHS Gardening podcast team, goodbye. Walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit Cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.